0: We, studied, we started our study here on the life of Abraham with a reminder that this entire second section, starting in verse 12 of the book of Genesis, is a hinge story. Everything pivots here. We're studying the foundations of our faith, and we're going to continue to be doing that. We took a break and jumped into the book of Hebrews and James, and now... We're back into Genesis thinking about these essential components of our faith. These things that are non-negotiable. We we are not allowed to adjust them or to have opinions. Uh, they are the essentials. They are the core. They're the foundations. And certainly as we study this second part of the book of genesis it serves as a significant basis for those of us who follow jesus just as paul said to the galatians thinking about abraham and this thing we've heard the seed of abraham in galatians chapter 3 verse 16 now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to his offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. We see immediately Paul referring back to this very section of Scripture and saying, this is where the seed of Christ was born. And so this Messiah seed that would grow into the tree that's planted on Mount Calvary would be planted in the life of Abraham. Abraham is mentioned 40 times in the New Testament. He's a character of importance. He's a foundational character. And yet the power of Abraham's life is not necessarily in his life and actions, but in not just what, but who he believed And so it is of no little significance that the first time that the word believed is used in the Bible as a verb is found right here in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. So the very foundation of faith in Messiah alone by grace alone in faith alone is born here in these chapters in Genesis. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to be looking at Genesis 15 through 17. We've talked about this before. This year is kind of a year of overview. It's flying over. The temptation, and I apologize for this, like I've done in a couple of our weeks together, is to get hunked down in some details, and then the sermons end up a little bit long. So... I'm going to try not to do that, but we do want to take an overview and look at the foundations. That's the goal of our time together today. And you can kind of do a careful reading. I've done it multiple times of Genesis 15, 16, and 17. And if you're even taking it slow and you're reading carefully, you can pretty much get through that read in about eight minutes. But the reality from Genesis chapter 15 Till Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 17, this covers 25 years of Abraham's life. I think it's really important because it's so easy for us to sterilize Bible characters. True? And so we think it takes eight minutes to read, and we think our faith should therefore be developed in eight minutes. We think as long as it takes us to read from 15 to 17, it should take us to hear this truth and then develop it into a reality in our lives. Church, that's just not the way it is. And so one of the things that I've had to do in, a, in adjusting myself to the gospel, myself first, and then also my teaching is to realize just because you teach something once doesn't mean people are, are radically and you know, magically transformed. These things take time that should help us to continue to press on when we don't feel like it and we don't feel like it's working and we feel like this thing is taking us longer than it should, we should press on because it takes us longer than eight minutes. Yeah. And then also when you live with somebody else who's it's taking a long time to get the gospel born out into their life, you ought to be able to be patient and long-suffering realizing that this takes longer than eight minutes. But these passages do cover 25 very critical and arduous years of Abraham's life. So here's the thesis statement that summarizes these three chapters that we're going to be skipping over today, but I'm trying to succinctly bring down this passage into a brief couple of sentences. Here they are. The Lord is faithful to His covenant commitments Swearing by the only guaranteed thing in the universe, which is himself. And those who wait upon him, who look towards him and act in faith, some things will happen, will be regularly reminded of his promises by his saying so. Because the Lord is a covenant-keeping God, we're going to see this in the life of Abraham. And if you take time, which I would encourage you to do, to read through 15, 16, 17, you'll see numerous times where God continues to come to Abraham and remind him of His Word. We have His Word. And that's true, we're going to find a lot of fulfillment of his promises and a lot of repetition of his promises to us when we read his word. But church, even when we stray, and even when we're not reading his word, isn't it true that he comes through other people, through experiences, through life circumstances, and he comes with his word to come and get us? True? He does. And if we are faith followers of Christ believing that He will keep His covenant commitments, we will be regularly reminded of His promises. And by His saying so, by His word. We'll be exposed to a timeline much farther than the human eye can see. Those who look to the Lord in faith will also consistently experience his acts of faithfulness. Again, him coming to get us, even at times when we don't want to be gotten. And then those who wait upon him and look to him in faith will be practically shaped, they'll be tangibly shaped. Our lives will be transformed. By our faith-filled living. Not just saying, I believe you, but I'm adjusting myself, and it changes us. So that's kind of our overall thesis statement. The Lord is faithful to His commitments because He swears by Himself. Because it's rooted in who He is. And here's what we should know Here's what I want me to know, you to know, as a result of our time together tonight that God's faithfulness is awesome and our faithfulness is awkward. It just is. His faithfulness is awesome, ours is awkward. Like gangly teenagers fumbling over ourselves. True, I remember being 13 years old trying to play basketball. My, I used to get sore knees from them babies knocking together all the time. I didn't. I looked like a baby orangutan. I really did. I was all arms, legs. My, my legs looked like ropes with knots in the middle. I mean, but that's us, church. Our faith is often awkward. We've got to remember. The Bible is not, it's for us. It's not about us. It's about God's faithfulness to us. So here's what we should know that God's faithfulness is awesome. Our faithfulness is awkward. But here's what I don't want us to miss what we do is important. I'm not negating that. The word doesn't negate that at all. What we do is important. Our choices, like in the life of Abraham and his nephew Lot, have long generational consequences, good and bad. We still have conflict in the Middle East because of choices Abraham made 4,000 years ago. What we do is important. It means something. For those of us who hang around Calvinist circles, oftentimes it's very easy for us to kind of throw our hands up and God's going to do what He says He's going to do anyway, and then we don't take our decisions seriously. That's a mistake. What we do is important and it has generational consequences. And if you forsake that reality, you will see it borne out in the life of your grandchildren. You will. And while what we do is important, and our faithfulness in action shapes generations, it is not ultimate. You with me? This is true with Abraham, it's true for us. We should know this as a result of studying this passage. What we do is important, and we should take it seriously. And God commends what we do, or condemns what we do. He takes great joy in our faith, or we can trouble Him. What we do is important, but what we do is not ultimate. And so here's what we should do Here's what I hope we would do as a result of going through these few chapters. That we would constantly be adjusting ourselves to live by active faith in what the Lord has promised. That's what we should be doing. Because our faith is awkward... We always have room to be adjusting and changing and that we would be inspired, empowered, that we would realize that God's complete and utter awesome faithfulness gives us the ability to act with some level of freedom to pursue Him even though our pursuit is awkward. So Lord, help us to pursue You even when our faith is awkward. So we left off the call of Abraham in chapter 12, which took us all the way through the end of that chapter. Now I'm going to just kind of bring us up 12, 13, 14, because then we're going to jump into chapter 15. So in chapter 12, Abraham is called by God to come out of everything he knows and finds comfortable. By the way, um, when Jason, towards the end he's praying, and um, somebody's phone was going off. I thought, come on, guys, you should know by now to silence your phones. And then I thought, man, that's awful close. It was mine. <laughs> and just know this, that if you put your phone on silence, it doesn't work. When the hurricane, you've got to turn it off. Um, but we have some people. If the roof blows off, we'll probably stop, okay? But other than that, we're just going to keep moving, um, But in chapter 12, Abraham is called by God. He's called to come out from this place where he was very comfortable, even from his father's house, to start a community of people who will live completely differently by faith in what God has said. And again, that takes us mostly through chapter 12. And despite whatever Abraham's reasoning was for going to Egypt, But then we do know that he definitely lied when he got there. So despite his awkward faithfulness in getting to Egypt, he still, with his wife, leaves with more stuff, more resources than he went in there with. So even in his awkward faith stumbling forward, he goes into Egypt and he comes out more prosperous than he went in. By the way, this is a snapshot. When we get into Genesis chapter 15, we're not going to cover this too much. But he talks about, God tells Abraham that your, your offspring are going to be 400 years in captivity. This is the first time Abraham realizes, oh, this seed born thing is much longer than I expected. He's telling me my, my, my relatives are going to be enslaved for 400 years. He doesn't say it specifically, but they're going into, we know, Egypt right? Where did Abraham and Sarah go? They went into Egypt. How did they come out? They came out more rich than they went in. And what, what God is doing is he's helping Abraham to see your relatives will be in a longer version of what you just experienced. You went into Egypt and you came out more rich. Your family is going to go into Egypt and they're going to come out more rich. I am going to be faithful to do what I said. So it's just a small snapshot there that's uh, further developed in Genesis 15. But at this time, during Abraham's calling, he's about 75 years old. And so Abraham, along with Sarah and his nephew Lot, they leave Egypt. They go a little bit farther north and setter, settle into an area called the Negev. And as they're there, both Abraham and Lot's resources grow And they've got lots of herdmen and cattle and shepherds, and that's starting to become trouble. So they divide and they split up. Abraham's about 76, roughly. And then his nephew, Lot, based on his choices of land and the company that he chose to keep because he knew these people sin, but I'm still... what What the resources in the city they have are nice... He still gets caught up in a war and he gets captured and his resources and his family are all plundered by foreign kings. And so Abraham hears of this. He takes 318 of his trained men and he rescues Lot and their family and all of their resources and he brings them back. This is a miraculous battle. It specifically tells us that Abraham took 318 men. And from chapter 14, verse 19, we know that Abraham went up against five different kings. And we don't know what the number of all the warriors those five kings have, but we assume that it was much greater than 318. And even though that's an assumption, it's an educated assumption, and it's significant to note that after Abraham wins this victory, this priest king who Nathan introduced this to last week, Melchizedek, comes and blesses Abraham with these words, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So what Melchizedek says is, you're winning, Abraham, this delivery of all of these possessions and getting your nephew back, That was an act of the Most High. It was a miraculous battle win. Now, Abraham's about 77. And so now we come to chapter 15. And it starts this way. After these things, what things? Well, the things we just discussed. After the battles, after Abraham rescues Lot, and his kinsmen and their possessions, after he is blessed by Melchizedek, the word of the Lord comes to, to, to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Now it's been two years since God promised Abraham land and generational blessing. And that we know of, he hasn't heard much other than that. So now on the heels of this miraculous warrior intervention, God comes to him and says, see Abraham? In other words, he just had this miraculous intervention, this warrior experience, and God is saying, experientially, you see, I'm going to be your shield. You see how I just did that? Now I'm telling you that was me. I am going to shield you. So don't fear. My promises are coming true. And he is blending that with Abraham's experience so that he knows, yep, this is true. It's going to happen. So the word of the Lord came to Abraham. And here's Abraham's response after this miraculous in some vision or theophany where God appears to Abraham. We're not exactly sure, but he comes and he says, I just delivered you experientially, you know, I'm going to continue to shield you. You can trust and hope in me. And then in chapter starting in verse two, we see Abraham's response. Oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he, the Lord, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So on one hand, Abraham is commended for his faith He's praised for his belief, and yet it's awkward. You see it? So the Lord comes to Abraham on the heels of miraculously supporting him. He he blesses him through a priest king, reminds him these things were done for you by the Lord, and Abraham responds with two questions. What will you give me? And how will I know that I'm supposed to possess it? What we're seeing here is that the Lord's faithfulness is awesome and Abraham's faithfulness is awkward. There's a lot going on in this passage, but there's a couple key things that I want us to take away in our overview. One, who Abram is and what he does is important. The Lord commends his belief. The Lord reminds Abraham that his choices will have generational consequences and long-lasting redemptive impact. And the second thing we should take from this narrative is that what Abraham is doing is important. It's not ultimate. Redemption will ultimately come not through what Abraham does. Redemption comes through what God does. And so this is made super clear in the next part of the narrative. Abraham, what you're doing is important, but it's not ultimate. Redemption, you will play a part in it by your faith, but redemption will not come through what you do, it will come through what I do. Look at the narrative, starting in chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 7. So Abraham says, What will you give me? And the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, he said to him, Bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down, the carcasses Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, "Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go into your you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here." in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this is what we know is the Abrahamic covenant. It is a covenant of utmost seriousness. A covenant made in blood. And again, seeking the assurance of God's promises, Abraham asks, can you help me? Will you affirm for me how I'm going to know you're going to do this? And the Lord responds by engaging Abraham in a ceremony that would have already been familiar to Abraham. This was something that we know from ancient history, that this was a ceremony that they would actually practice, that it would not have been awkward or unknown to Abraham. But Abraham is instructed to make a sacrifice of various animals. He cuts the carcasses in half, and then he lays them opposite each other in a ravine-shaped rock so that the blood would flow towards the center, creating a pathway of blood And so in this ancient tradition, both parties making the covenant were to actually walk in the puddle of blood between the animals as a symbol of their commitment to both the covenant and to one another. And then also symbolized in this ceremony is the fate that would befall them should one of them default on their commitment. In other words, someone must die if one of us falls short of this commitment, if I fall short of this commitment, I will shed my blood. If you fall short of this commitment, you will shed your blood. Someone's blood must flow. Someone will be rent in half. And so while this blood path tradition would have been familiar to Abraham, Abraham, what would have been clearly and indelibly would have stood out to him is that Abraham never did his part. So while Abraham sleeps, the Lord alone symbolically passes through the path of blood two times. Once for himself and once for Abraham. And in doing this, the Lord is communicating something very clearly. Abraham, what you are doing is important, but it's not ultimate. I will fulfill this covenant myself. It will take longer than you think. By the time this is finished, you will be long dead and buried beside your ancestors while I carry the covenant forward. I will bring redemption through your life and through your faith, but it will be clearly me who brings it. And again, God's faithfulness is awesome, and Abraham's faithfulness is awkward. What is it that Abraham actually does in this covenant ceremony? He sleeps. He does nothing but believe. And that is why that Abraham becomes the father, not of redemption, but he becomes the father of belief because it's the only thing he does. He becomes the father of faith unto action in him who promises and fulfills the redemptive work. So as we read in our Romans passage, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to the, also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And what does he father us in? Belief. Abraham believes the Lord will provide redemption and so much so that he obeys God even though his obedience and his faithfulness is awkward. And this idea of faith, Abraham's faith being awkward is something we talked a little bit about in Genesis chapter 12 where we saw both Abraham's faith and his failures. And this reality of Abraham's faith being kind of gangly and awkward is significantly made in the next two sections of this narrative. So in chapter 16 and verse 17, we're going to see this awkward faith of Abraham again in the conception and the birth of his son Ishmael through his wife's servant Hagar, and yet we're also going to see Abraham's faithfulness as he immediately obeys in the covenant sign of circumcision. So let's talk just briefly about this birth of Ishmael. So Abraham and Sarah have been promised a son who would bring salvation, and they've been given this covenant sign of animals laid apart, God walking through the middle of these two things on his own two times. But from the end of chapter 15... Until the beginning part of chapter 16, eight years has passed. So God has told them what He's going to do, and yet eight years of nothing. Well, by the time eight years have passed, Abraham is now getting up there as well as Sarah. And they're beginning to wonder what's God doing? And so they decide to help God along with His promises. They're going to help God along with his redemptive work. You said the son will come through Abraham. Well, let's help that process along. And so a practice common of that time, Sarah took her servant and she gave, him, gave her to Abraham that he might have a child with her. This was not God's plan. But Abraham and Sarah's temptation, church, I'm going to argue is the same as ours, to help God along in his plan of redemption when we don't see him doing anything. True? How often do we read words about relationships and how to do certain things and how to be commendable and impeccable in our integrity in the way we work or pay taxes and yet we don't believe that God's word will produce what we think what he says it's going to produce and still rather than obeying and waiting upon what he says he will do through his word we're going to help him along in his plan of redemption and again Abraham and Sarah do this And we're still reaping the consequences of their actions. And yet, while what they do is important, it's not ultimate. And We come to chapter 17 and the covenant sign of circumcision. One of the things, and I'd read it multiple times, but I guess when we were reading it out loud, I was surprised how many times the word circumcision is repeated. And I have wondered... How many people in our church body do not know what that word means? And so I'm going to leave it up to you fathers to explain that to your children. And then if there's anybody here that doesn't have a dad here that needs to know, you're more than welcome to come and ask me. But I'm going to leave the bulk of that responsibility on dads to communicate what circumcision is. But culturally, the sign of circumcision is is not something that we discuss a lot today, other than that it's kind of like this private medical matter. We don't really see it as a religious... We don't see it affiliated religiously. But the practice in ancient time was also... Very common, and it was usually attached to religious belief or some kind of adult rite of passage. So most oftentimes happened when somebody turned 12, 13, 14 years old or just before they were to get married. But it was not something that was introduced to the Jewish community alone. We know from ancient history that the Egyptians and the Amorites both practiced this um, ceremony of circumcision. But I only say all that to say that there's nothing necessarily special about the practice itself. Godless nations were practicing it. So why would God have that instituted? This is Paul's big argument in the New Testament. That there's nothing necessarily special about the practice itself. It's his point. If you're depending on circumcision for your salvation... You're trusting in something very weak. There's nothing special about the practice. It was unique that the Jews would practice it on the eighth day as God had commanded it after a, a boy was born eight days after. Human acts do not bring about the, the righteousness that appeases God, nor does it bring about salvation. But human acts can be physical acts where our faith is manifested tangibly. And this is what we see in the life of Abraham. And this is the point we should take away from this whole circumcision discussion. In Genesis chapter 17, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision as a way of tangibly manifesting generationally their faith in action. Church, I'm hoping I'm doing okay here helping you. But what the point is, is that obedience attached to faith is absolutely necessary. This is James's point later in the New Testament. You can't have faith without action. And so, what God does is, He gives Abraham a common practice and He makes it uncommon by saying, Do this generationally as an expression because an expression of your faith is paramount do this as an expression of your faith in other words obey out of faith have faith unto action and Genesis 17 19 records that Abraham obeyed him and his household that very day he hears the words of the Lord And he says, from this day forward, he starts with himself and Abraham and then his entire household. I was thinking about this, and I know when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham had questions. I think if I lived in Abraham's house and he came to me and said, hey everybody, this is what we're doing, I think I would have had some questions, perhaps. That was a joke, right? (laughs) It is funny, too. But Paul further clarifies this to the Romans. And again, we read this, but he says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of, of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. This is just a physical manifestation of an inward reality. It's the same as baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a physical manifestation of an outward reality. Everybody who says, I follow Christ, should be willfully, volitionally, by choice, baptized. I want to identify myself with Christ. I'm doing it as a step of obedience. It's an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So, here should be some takeaways for us today. I'm hoping that we are impressed and encouraged with this reality that the Lord is faithful to his covenant commitments. Because he swears by the only thing that is steadfast and guaranteed in our universe. Himself. His own character. And he will do what he says. Matter of fact, when in John chapter 2, 3... When the Lord comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive the Messiah, she sings a song. And as part of her song, it's called the Magnificat. As part of her song, she sings, You have remembered your promise to Abraham. You know how long it was from Abraham to Mary? 2,000 years. 2,000 years. And in her song of rejoicing, you have remembered your covenants that you made 2,000 years ago. And then right after that, John records the, the song of Zacharias in the temple. And he also says the same thing in his song. You remembered your covenant with Abraham. Church, we are in the same place that both Mary and Zacharias were. We're waiting 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. He is not slow in keeping His promises. He knows what He is going to do. God keeps His promises and His covenants made in blood. And that's what Nathan did a really good job helping us to celebrate last week. He made a covenant in blood by His Son Christ, He will fulfill His covenant. He is coming back for us. He will establish His kingdom. And the fact that He Himself is going to do it does not minimize the importance of what we do. Both Abraham's faith and failures have had long ongoing impact both positively and negatively. We didn't get it into because of time, but we also see these same generational impacts in the lives of his nephew, Lot, and even the way Lot's daughters were treated. Why? Because Lot made significant decisions that had generational impact. We should also see the devastating effects that Adam's choices and Cain's choices and Lemek's choices and Noah's choices, generational impact. What we do is important. Even our awkward faith. But it's not ultimate. It will not thwart God's rescuing redemptive plan. He's going to do what He says He's going to do. We just get to choose to participate in how we're going to work alongside and with Him. God's faithfulness is awesome and our faithfulness will be awkward. But we will be regularly reminded of his promises by his saying so. Through his word, through other people, through circumstances. We will be exposed to a timeline much further than we can see. Church, these things may not ever happen in our Experience, but our faithfulness will go on for generations. We will be consistently able to experience his acts of faithfulness. And those who have been around the faith for very long, if we pause long enough and get past ourselves, we can recount time after time after time of God's faithfulness to us. True? So true. And for those of us who wait upon Him and look to Him in faith, we will be practically shaped by our faith that we practice unto action. So we return to what we should know. We should know that God's faithfulness is awesome. Ours will be awkward. What we do is important. There is long-lasting consequences. Our faithfulness shapes generations, but it's not ultimate. We have the freedom to move forward in daily obedience in small ways that we know, because we don't have to do God's big job for Him. Guys, I get so distracted by t- trying to do God's plan of redemption while I ignore what I'm called to do in the daily mundane. True? Redemption does not come about by human strategy. That's what we learned through Ishmael. Redemption does not come about by human strategy. Redemption comes about by faith unto action. So may we consistently adjust our lives, regularly bringing ourselves back, to live out, to obey in faith this truth that comes from the Lord just as He has promised. And Father, we need You for this work. We are not empowered on our own to do this. And so we give You great thanks that as Jesus left, He says, I'm sending a comforter, a teacher, a reminder who will be placed in You that will continually appeal to your spirit on God's behalf. Thank you for giving us the spirit. Lord, may we hear and heed his voice and not harden ourselves against him. And may we regularly be adjusting ourselves to live by faith in action in what you have said. And we thank you for giving us the ability to do that. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and his Spirit who lives within us. Amen.